Well, we are going through the Gospel of Mark together as a church. Today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 4. Uh, last week we covered almost the entirety of chapter 4, but we left these six verses, verses 35 through 41 to cover today. A very well-known passage of Scripture, a very familiar Bible story, if you've had any exposure to or familiar with, familiarity with the Bible, the story of Jesus calming the storm. And so we're going to take a lot of time to look at just six verses today. And I want to also set it up that I want you to imagine yourself being in part of the story. Last week I, I taught on the nature of story and how impacting it is for us. And today I really want to invite you to place yourself in the story as one of the disciples with Jesus in the boat. I want you to let your imagination go to where you would go in your heart and in your mind. And I also want to... Um, look at this almost maybe devotional style where we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and we're going to glean some principles, some biblical truths from the text that can apply to our lives. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to begin by reading straight through our passage and then I'll pray and then we'll get to work unpacking what it is that God has for us today. So read with me if you would. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word, your word that instructs us, your word that teaches us and trains us. Your word that convicts us of sin and shows us our great Savior, Jesus. And God, though there is um, a lot for us in the Bible, God, may we always remember that the Bible is not about us. The Bible is about you, Lord God, sending your son, Jesus, to rescue and redeem lost and drowning sinners like me and like my friends here today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause these words to come to life in our hearts and in our minds today. Would you bless the teaching of your word in Jesus' name? Everybody said, amen. I don't know what your experience with the water is, uh, maybe in boating or, or maybe you grew up and you're a surfer. I, I grew up in Alaska, as you know, so I, I know a little bit about boats, not much, but we would go fishing, we'd spend time on the water. Uh, one time in my life, I've been on a cruise ship. Uh, a handful of times, I've been on a ferry. Uh, I have paddled a canoe around a lake before, so, uh, you know, probably just your average amount of experience with the water. But if you have any more experience with the water. I know there's some, uh, even people here who have been on boats, served in the Navy, things like that. You know that the water and the sea is an incredibly powerful force. 
And things that one minute look very placid or look very calm can all of a sudden turn into a power and a force that you did not anticipate dealing with. I have one story in my life that comes to mind, and it was from a few years ago. We took a family vacation to Hawaii. It was an extended family vacation. It was my parents, my family, my brother's family, and my sister's family, and like 326 grandkids or some number that I've lost count of, okay? So we were all there together in Hawaii, and one day, the wind kicked up extra hard. And so the waves got bigger. And they were too big for the kids to play in, and so we got all the kids out, and the kids were kind of sitting up on the beach and maybe contemplating going back up to uh, the hotel room. And my dad and my brother and I thought, well, we're men, we're tough, strong, grown, manly men, and we want to go bodyboarding on these big waves, and we will surely not drown because we don't want to think about that. So we dove into the water, and all was going well. These were big waves. They were, they were um, kind of like you'd see in the movies, you know, like big kind of crashing waves, and all looks great, and it's Hawaii, and the picture uh, is picture perfect. Until one time, I misjudged the angle, and I hit the wave up high right as it was about to break, and the thing crushed me, knocked me into the ocean floor. I hit my head on the ocean floor and blacked out for a few seconds. And when I came to, I came up out of the water and looked and I saw my wife standing on the beach just shaking her head at me like, you fool. And it was just amazing how it went from something so picture perfect, so idyllic in one minute to all of a sudden, whoa, I am dealing with a power that I didn't truly understand. And even though that's a, a, a kind of a lame parallel, what we see today in the passage is the fear of these disciples of Jesus as they find themselves in a small, about 25-foot-long fishing boat dealing with a great storm and a power that they couldn't control. But what we're going to also see is that even though they thought that the power in the wind and the waves was great, they're going to come up against an even greater power in Jesus Christ himself. But before we dive into what the passage is teaching us, I want to do some preparation work. I want to do a little bit of just laying some groundwork before we dive in. The first thing I want you to understand is that this, the Bible was written by and, and in the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And in the Jewish mindset, and even throughout the pages of the scripture, you will see that the Jewish people were not particularly seafaring people. They were not known for being good boaters. They were not known for their love of the sea. In fact, there were other countries like the Phoenicians who were very well known for that, neighboring countries, but the Jewish people absolutely were not. And in fact, water had come to symbolize more than just power or danger, but it actually had come to symbolize the forces of chaos and evil themselves. Let me give you a few examples so you can understand what I'm talking about. If you read in Genesis chapter 1, the account of God creating the heavens and the earth, before God fashions and forms the earth to be inhabitable by man, it says in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's the earth, but it's void, and it's chaotic, and it's unmade, and the symbol that is used there is water. Or if you go uh, to the next book of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 14, you have the formative event in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, the Exodus, in which God takes the people of Israel through the Red Sea on dry land, 
Pharaoh's army is chasing them and the waves come in and crash and kill all of the pursuing armies. Incidentally, um, if any of you saw the Exodus movie that came out a few months ago, uh, everybody was upset about something about that movie. The part that I was the most upset about in watching that movie was at the end when Moses and, and Ramses were battling and the waves come and crash, like 100-foot waves come and crash on them, and then Moses like swims safely to shore. I thought, nuh-uh, I remember Hawaii. That would not happen, okay? He would be dead. He would be blacked out. That was the part that made me the most angry um, of everything in that movie. Not really, but... Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, another example, is Daniel's having a vision, and it says, four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another, and he goes on to describe those beasts as being representative of the forces of evil and power in the world that are opposed to God's wise and loving rule. And if you want a really interesting little piece, in Revelation 21, at the very, very end of the Bible, when John is having a vision of what will happen at the end of the age, it says that John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And it says this, and the sea was no more. Very interesting little phrase. You may have not seen that before. The sea was no more. And before any of you who are swimmers or boaters or water enthusiasts panic, thinking that there's not going to be any water in heaven, remember what I said. It's a symbol, it's a metaphor that there will be no more chaos, no more evil. So today when we're reading this story about the wind and the sea and the wind and the waves coming up and displaying power against Jesus and the disciples, remember this would not have been just mere fear of the water or fear of drowning. For them there are actually theological ramifications for what they're experiencing. The water symbolizes chaos and evil, and here we find ourselves in the grip of the, the very thing that we fear the most. Also, our passage today takes us to the Sea of Galilee, okay? We, we saw last week that Jesus was teaching parables. He actually got into a boat on the Sea of Galilee so that people could crowd around on the beach and hear him speak, and so that's what was happening last week in the passage we looked at last time. And so we're introduced to the Sea of Galilee. And, and I, I will say this. Sometimes when we read stories about miraculous activity of God, it is possible for us to maybe check out of reality, if I could use that phrase. Sometimes we read these stories about miracles or great acts of God and we start to put them more in the category of, I don't know, the Lord of the Rings or a fantasy book or something that's not real life actual history. But today I really want to help you see the reality of what the situation was. I want you to see that the Bible is not just teaching us a spiritual myth for our encouragement, but it's actually teaching us history about what happened in the life of Jesus. And so I've got a couple of pictures I want to show you. The first one is a map. I'll have the guys throw this first one up, okay? This is a map of Palestine, the, the area of Israel in the time of Jesus. If you see towards the top there, there's the, the one lake. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's in the northern region of Israel. It's, this, it's in the region of Galilee, and that's where Jesus is from originally. If you go down towards the bottom, you can only see part of it, but that's the Dead Sea down there. That's Judea, the southern half. And that's where Jerusalem is, the capital city where the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus took place. The Sea of Galilee, I, I looked it up online so you know it has to be true, that the Sea of Galilee is approximately, that was a joke by the way, I don't really think that everything on the internet is true. The Sea of Galilee is approximately twice the size of Lake Washington. 
So if you need a kind of a comparison, if you've been to Lake Washington or been on a boat there or driven past it, the Sea of Galilee is about twice the size. Now, uh, in God's providence, one of the members of our church, one of the members of our board, our treasurer, Dale Kamick, he and his wife just last year took a trip to Israel, and he had a photo taken of him and his wife on the Sea of Galilee. And there they are. Isn't that cool? Notice, the, notice all of the mountains in the background. The whole Sea of Galilee is actually surrounded by mountains and what uh, meteorologists and, and those who study the topography and those who study even just the Bible would say that it is very common for winds to come whipping down the mountains and actually stir the Sea of Galilee up into uh, quite a storm. And they, uh, Terry, I was talking with her right before the first service this morning and she was saying, yeah, when they got there in the evening, it got rough. Maybe not a great storm rough like we see in the scripture today, but it got really, really rough. Go to the next picture, please. This next picture uh, is also the Sea of Galilee. You can see more hills and more mountains surrounding it. But I like this picture for two reasons. First of all, you see this kind of beach area. And in my mind, this really helps me kind of picture Jesus sitting in the boat, teaching that whole beach just filled with people, crowds of people listening to him teach. And it's kind of nighttime. The sun is going down, and it was at that time of day in the evening when Jesus said to his disciples, hey, let's go across the lake. So if you need a, a mental image, or you need a mental picture, I want you to maybe kind of think of that. I want to show you also really quickly what one of the boats would have looked like. This is an artist's recreation of what one of the typical Galilean fishing boats would have looked like, about 26 or 27 feet long. You could fit 14, 15 people in there reasonably comfortably. It's got a mast in the middle, so you can put up a sail if you have favorable winds. If not, there's uh, room for two sets of oars. Imagine Jesus in the back asleep. That's, about, that's an artist's picture. Look at this, though. This is an actual historical dig. They found this buried in the dirt on the Sea of Galilee. It is actually a 2,000-year-old Galilean fishing boat. And they dug it out of the dirt. They had to be very, very careful to preserve it. They did radiocarbon testing and all those things. They determined it to be from the first century AD and would be an actual uh, fishing boat that would have been used in the time of Jesus. Pretty cool, huh? So remember, we're talking about history here. Jesus performing these miracles is not a, a myth. It's not a fairy tale. This is reality. This is real stuff. You can still go there. By God's grace, I hope to, to travel there one day and see it for myself and with my children. But for now, I'll have to live vicariously through uh, Dale the Treasurer. So, and you can join me on my quest. So with that as the setup, let's now go into the text. Let's go into the Word of God and let's see what Jesus has for us today. So let's start in verse 35. We're going to see the disciples and Jesus heading into the storm. So, on that day when evening had come, that day, that day being the same day that Jesus had been teaching, using the boat to teach parables, now he's going to use the boat to teach through miracles. On that same day when evening had come, he said to them, to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. It's getting evening. The crowds have been with me all day. Let's send the crowds away and let's go get away. We're not entirely sure why Jesus wanted to go to the other side. Maybe it was to get a break from the crowds. Some scholars would say it was to go preach to the other cities. Whatever the specific reason, we know that the purpose was so God could display his glory in this moment. Let's go across the other side and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So just as he was, Jesus was there in the boat. They just jumped in. Let's go. And other boats were with him. 
Other boats were with him. Scholars debate a little bit in terms of, does that mean there were other people in boats listening to Jesus preach? There were other boats there? Or does that mean maybe the disciples broke up into a couple different boats and they had a, a group going? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't explain what those other boats were. But I would tell you this. Remember how in the very first sermon of Mark, we talked about Peter being the one who is recounting his memories to Mark and Mark writing them down? It's little eyewitness details like that that help uh, bring credibility to that idea. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Just little supposedly irrelevant details that actually give validity to the Bible. This is truth. This is an actual eyewitness account of what happened. And other boats were with him. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. A great windstorm, not a regular windstorm, a great one. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I am not a nautical expert, but I do know that the boat is not supposed to be filled with water. Okay? So the boat was already filling, but he, Jesus, was in the stern. <laughs> this is probably one of my favorite Bible verses. Asleep on the cushion. That means there's one cushion and Jesus took it. I love that. I don't know why, but it just fascinates me. And he was asleep on the cushion. Actually, it's interesting because Jesus being asleep on the cushion is, is, is a particularly relevant detail. I'll read to you um, from Charles Spurgeon. He had a, a great quote on this idea that Jesus being asleep on the cushion, remember, he had been preaching all day long, so he was physically exhausted. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, we do not always think enough of the weariness of Christ's human body. There was not only the effort of preaching, but his preaching was so full of high thought and the expressions he used were so pregnant with meaning that it must have taken much out of him to preach thus from the heart with intense agony of spirit and with his brain actively at work all the while. Remember, Spurgeon says, that he was truly man as well as the Son of God. And that he, what he did was of so high an order not to be reached by any of us that it must have exhausted him. And therefore he needed sleep to refresh him. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully man. I believe that Spurgeon rightly calls our attention to the fact that in the first half of this passage, we see Jesus' humanity on display. Now, we know in a minute we're going to see his divinity on full display, but for right now, I want you to remember that Jesus was a man, a human being like any of us. He got tired. He was thirsty. He needed a cushion to take a nap. And you think about how exhausted he must have been that he is actually sleeping through a great storm. The disciples, they, they would have been bailing water out. I mean, think about how much water was in the boat. Jesus is sleeping in the water. You ever had like one of your kids just fall asleep and like no matter what you do, you cannot get them to wake up? That's kind of like what I imagine Jesus is sleeping. I mean, he is just knocked out. And that's a reminder of Jesus' humanity. That in his earthly existence, in his human existence, he experienced weakness, he experienced limitations, he experienced being tired, just like you and just like me. And they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to, from these passages, from these verses here, 
I want to pull out two principles, okay? The first one is this. The disciples experienced difficulty as a direct result of following Jesus. I heard some uh uh-ohs. Okay, so yes, here we go. You know, this story has a lot of parallels to the story of Jonah. You guys familiar with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? If, you've, if not, even if you're maybe not very familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. God told him to go to Nineveh to preach. Jonah was a bit of a racist and a total chicken. He says, no, I'm going to go the opposite direction. Jumps on a boat. The boat ends up in a massive storm. He's sleeping, very similarly to Jesus. The other sailors come down and get him like, hey, bro, don't you, kind of very similarly, don't you care? We're all going to drown. And Jonah goes, yeah, I'm running from God. This is all my fault. You should probably just kill me. So they throw him in the water and fish comes and swallows him. And you guys know the rest of the story. Except here's the difference. Even though there's a lot of similar sort of language, it's the exact opposite. Because while Jonah ended up in a storm because of his opposition to God, the disciples ended up in a storm as a direct result of following Jesus. Jesus was the one who said to them, let us go to the other side of the sea. And they all said, sounds good, Jesus. We trust you. You're the boss. You know, it is unfortunately too common to hear preachers, TV preachers sometimes, say things like, if you come to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, all of your problems will go away, all of your life will be smooth sailing, you won't have any issues. Now, hear me on this. There are benefits in this life to following Jesus, amen? It is not, though, following Jesus is like the worst possible thing you could do, except for those times when following, the Jesus, following Jesus is the worst possible thing you could do. Because following Jesus is a life of picking up your cross, dying daily, not regarding your life as being more important than his life. So it would be unfair for me to say that following Jesus is just always the pits and always the worst, but there are times, very often, when we will experience difficulty in life specifically because we are following Jesus specifically because we're following Jesus. I like the way that Alistair Begg, a preacher who I really love listening to, Alistair Begg puts it. He says this, if you believe in a God who prevents his children from ever knowing difficulty, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. If you believe in a God who prevents his children from ever knowing difficulty, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. So the disciples ended up in difficulty as a direct result of them following Jesus. So what does that mean for us? That means when you or one of your friends are experiencing a storm, as it were, going through a season of tremendous difficulty, we must be careful to not rush in and assume that they're somehow uh, made God angry and he's trying to get it back at them. Let's not be like the friends of Job. Amen? You guys remember Job in the Old Testament? Job was a man who was righteous. God allowed him to be tested and and sifted, and Satan came and brought a lot of calamity upon him. It says in chapter 2 that Job's friends showed up, and for seven days and seven nights, they said nothing. And Job's friends were never at their finest (laughs) than in that moment. And then the problem happens is in the next chapter, they open their mouths and they start speculating well, Job, maybe you did this, and maybe God's mad at you with this, and surely you had to have done some sin, or surely this or that. Listen, the point is we have to use discernment. The point is you cannot automatically look at someone's life and say, oh, you're going through a storm, or I'm going through a storm. I must have really made God mad. 
Consequently, you also can't look at your life and say, oh, I'm going through this difficult time, I'm going through the storm because I'm suffering for righteousness sake. No, sometimes you're sinful and foolish and you've brought it on yourself. We need discernment. Now, I am not going to get into the whys just yet. We're going to get into it in a minute, but I just want you to see the first principle is simply that sometimes followers of Jesus end up in storms, in trials, and difficulties because they said yes to God. The second principle I want to pull from this is that when in storms, followers of Jesus can be tempted to think that God doesn't care. Did you notice that from what the disciples said? It's interesting because I looked up in, in Matthew and in Luke. Both Matthew and Luke tell this story. John skips it. But Matthew and Luke tell the same story. And in Matthew and Luke, what's recounted, what the disciples say is simply, Lord, Master, we're perishing. Like, wake up, we're perishing. But in Mark, it's very interesting. In Mark, it says, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? My opinion is that this is, again, one of those firsthand experiences of Peter. This may be even a direct insight into Peter's heart in that boat in that moment. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that we're drowning? It's also very interesting that they turn to Jesus in the middle of the storm. Why is it interesting? Have you thought about it? Before his preaching ministry, what was Jesus' occupation? He was a carpenter. He worked in construction. And of his disciples, at least four, probably more, were what? Fishermen. They were used to spending time on the water. They were used to dealing with storms. They were used to dealing with boating and nautical sorts of things. Do you think that they woke Jesus up because they expected him with his carpentry skills to somehow be able to better help navigate the boat? Doesn't seem particularly likely to me, right? Jesus, can you help with the the jib and the, I don't even know what I'm saying, but like they, I should just not have tried that. But you think they were going to wake Jesus up and, and have him help with the boating? I don't think so. I don't think that's particularly likely. Let me ask you this question. Do you think they were waking Jesus up and expecting him to somehow miraculously calm the, the sea and the storm? I don't think so either because look at the shock in the second half when he actually does that, they're shocked, they're afraid, they're like, whoa, we did not expect that. I, my conclusion, studying this and reading this, is they just simply wanted to know that Jesus cared. They really wanted to know that Jesus cared. Here these men were, they've given up their lives, their professions, their careers, they've left behind family, they've left behind all sorts of things to follow Jesus. And here they are facing death, and the one that they've left everything to follow is just laying there asleep. Don't you care? It's not necessarily that they even wanted him to do something. They just wanted to know that he cared. And if we were honest, I think we have all prayed prayers like that at one time or another. We've all prayed prayers. God, don't you care? Don't you see the difficulty I'm going through? Don't you know how bad this hurts? Don't you care? You know, the Old Testament gives us a lot of examples of people praying, crying out in a similar sort of way. I think of David in Psalm 13 where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's kind of a gutsy prayer. 
hey, dear God, are you paying attention? I think of Habakkuk, the prophet, chapter one, verse two, Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Like I'm trying to bring these awful things to your attention, God, and it's, it's like you don't even hear. Or the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, he says, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite. I'm weeping, I'm crying, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. I think some of us have prayed similar prayers. I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet some of you have prayed prayers like that this week. Don't you see? Don't you care? When we're in storms, followers of Jesus can be tempted to believe that he doesn't care. Now listen, what would be the best? Here's the ideal. If each and every one of us trusted Jesus fully, we knew that God our Father loves us, that he saved us, that our eternity is secure, that would be the best. But since I have not reached perfection, and I'm guessing that none of you have either, there are some times when those sorts of cries come up in our heart. Lord, don't you care? And I would say this, that the, if the Old Testament witness gives us anything, it's that God's big enough to handle those sorts of prayers. God can handle it when you cry out to him in that way. Would it be better to trust him and settle in? I, I think so. But if you have those thoughts, if you have those feelings, if you have those prayers, you know what's, what's really good? Is to get them out. Go yell at God. He'll, he'll listen. He'll correct you. He'll show you. But it's, it's, if you're stuffing those things down, that's not healthy. God already knows the thoughts of your heart anyways. So speak them out. Go speak them to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what I'm feeling like. Here's where my heart is at. Let them sit with you. Let them pray with you. Let them cry with you. God does care. God does care. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I just want to make the simple point that it is not uncommon for followers of Jesus to sometimes be tempted to believe that he doesn't care. So let's be honest about that. Let's be truthful about that. Okay, those are the first two principles I wanted to draw out. Let's continue on. Verse 39, we're going to see the power of Jesus. So they woke him, teacher, do you not care? He awoke and he rebuked the disciples. You cowardly fools. No. He rebuked the wind and he rebuked the sea and he said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. See that word great calm? Just a minute ago, there was a great windstorm. Now there's a great calm. Something out of the ordinary. That storm was out of the ordinary. Out of the ordinary. Now it's a great calm that's out of the ordinary. You ever been early morning, maybe on a lake, and it just you talk about like a sea of glass where it's just as smooth as it could possibly be? It was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I love this. <laughs> And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love that. That's my other favorite verse in this passage is they were scared. Jesus calms the sea and then they were terrified. I love that. We're going to see three more principles 
here that I, I want to explain to you. The first one, well, well all three of them I'll, I'll say is this. Why does God allow his children to go through storms? The first one is to display his glory. The second is to redirect our attention to him. And the third one is to draw us closer relationally to him. So let's look at each one of these in turn. Third principle is this. God allows his children to go through storms in order to display his glory. When Jesus rises up and he rebukes the wind and he rebukes the sea, the word he uses is related in the Greek. It's related to the word to muzzle. Like the way you would muzzle an animal. My parents have a dog that will not ever stop barking. And so every once in a while they get the muzzle out to get it to calm down and stop driving the neighbors crazy. And that's almost a little bit, it's related to the picture that Jesus says when he stands up and he says to the wind of the sea, be muzzled. It would not be completely inaccurate for an, an English translator to translate it as shut up. And what's really fascinating is that not... He doesn't pray and ask God to speak to the wind and the waves. He doesn't do like the, the Old Testament prophets. He didn't do like Elijah where he prayed and asked God to stop the rain. Jesus just speaks directly to the wind and the waves themselves. You remember a few weeks ago when Jesus was teaching, it says they marveled at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their scribes. It's, it's not like he was saying, hey, you know, this is what so-and-so says. Rabbi so-and-so says this. He just taught and said, I say and in this moment, very similarly, he doesn't say, God, would you please stop the wind of the waves? He simply speaks to the wind and the waves and says, stop it. There is only one category for this. There is only one way to explain what just happened. It is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. A minute ago, lying asleep on the cushion, we saw Jesus in his humanity, exhausted asleep. Jesus rises up and displays his full divine power in taking authority over the wind and the sea. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip back to Psalm 107 briefly. I want to read to you from Psalm 107 what the disciples may have had in mind. They may have had passages like this in mind that show God's power over the waters. It says this in verse 23 of Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, the wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. So God's the one who controls the wind which lifted up the waves of the sea, they mounted up to heaven. These are big waves. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. So these people on the sea are doing evil. God causes a storm to come up and they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end and they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed and they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Church, who's in charge of the wind and the sea? God alone is. God alone is. God alone has the power to control the wind and the sea. And so when Jesus stands up and rebukes them, he is making a claim to being God. He says, I am God, I am in authority, and I am going to display my glory in this moment. And it is indeed at times of great difficulty in storms, in trials, in hardships, when God often does his finest work. Amen? It is in times of great difficulty that God can show up and he can do things in the life of a believer, in the life of a disciple of Jesus that cannot be explained in any other way other than God showed up. Any of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time, I love hearing stories 
of people who walked through a great trial and a great difficulty, and on the other side, God used it to bring great glory to himself. If you've experienced that, maybe it's a, a health scare. Maybe you were at death's door. Maybe it was a financial ruin. Maybe it was a relational break. And when all looks lost, when all looks hopeless, God shows up and saves the day and brings glory to himself. The greatest display of that, the darkest of dark moments, when God shows up and brings his glory in the brightest way is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is on the cross where the darkest storm ever raged. The fury of God's wrath, if I can use that language of a storm, that the fury of God's wrath for sin. If, you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I need you to hear me and I need you to understand that you and I are on our own. We are sinners. And our sin has caused God wrath because it is an affront to his righteousness and it is causing pain in other human beings that God loves and cares about. But rather than unleashing the full storm of his wrath and the full storm of his fury on those of us who deserve it, he poured it out on Jesus on the cross. And it looked like all was lost. It looked like all was done. And Jesus was swallowed up, proverbially speaking, by the sea, by the monsters, by evil, by chaos. And yet on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead and he's alive forevermore, never to die again, proving that he has authority, not just over the wind and the waves, but over sin and death itself. At the darkest moment in all of human history, the cross of Jesus, God displayed his glory in Christ by raising him from the dead. So it's at dark moments like that that we can know that God is displaying his glory. The glory of God is what the, the Westminster Catechism, what a, a series of questions and answers to learn about God, it, it says that the chief end of man, the whole purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And even here at Sound City Bible Church, we put that into our mission statement. We exist as a church to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus, receiving grace, being and making disciples. We exist to glorify God. Your storms exist to glorify God. What are you going through? What's the trial? What's the storm? What's the hardship? Does it exist to glorify you? Does it exist to ruin your life? No, it exists to glorify God. Jesus is God. He's worthy of our worship. He displays his ultimate power in this moment. It's like the writer of Hebrews puts it, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so I want you to see that sometimes God allows his children to go through storms in order to display his glory. Here's the fourth principle I want to draw from this. Sometimes God allows his children to go through storms in order to redirect our attention. Like I said, my, my favorite or maybe second favorite part of this entire story is when they were very scared, they're afraid of drowning, they're scared of the wind and the waves, Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and then it says, then they were terrified. Love that. Do you know why? Because that's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of the Lord, a lot of good things to say about the fear of the Lord. Things like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in our culture and in our day, it's probably not a particularly popular concept to teach. The fear of the Lord. 
Well, I don't want to be afraid of the Lord. That's the problem with religion is everyone's all scared of God. I just want to know about the loving and gracious and forgiving God. No, the fear of the Lord, the Bible speaks very highly of. I want you to see what the fear of the Lord really looks like. It looks like, for one thing, these disciples being afraid of the storm, but then understanding that Jesus has way more power than the storm. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, the fear of the Lord for you looks like the fear of judgment. Knowing that one day you will stand before God and have to give an account for your life, and apart from the blood of Jesus on your behalf, you will stand condemned. That's the fear of the Lord for a non-believer. But for a Christian who knows that God is their father, who knows that they are loved, the fear of the Lord looks very different. Let me briefly, hopefully, probably not, give you four things that the Bible says about the fear of the Lord, okay? Four aspects of what the fear of the Lord looks like. The first one is awe. Just wow. Something that's truly awesome. We use the word awesome far too lightly in our culture, okay? I understand it. Somebody makes a spectacular, uh, you know, catch in a football game. You know, that, that was awesome. Okay, not really, but I get it. I think of the, the psalmist in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, when he's praying, he says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? Like, who am I that you would even be mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him? If anybody here, um, has anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand if you've been to the Grand Canyon. Okay, I went to the Grand Canyon once. I think I was in, in about middle school, maybe early high school. And I don't remember who said it, but I've heard it said, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you walk up to the edge, nobody walks up to the Grand Canyon and declares, I am awesome. <laughs> That's just not what happens. When you walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you, you catch your breath. You're awestruck. The greatness of that, and if you think about it, I mean, the Grand Canyon is, is I mean, just a, a tiny fingerprint of what God's creative capabilities are. There's a hurricane on Jupiter that's, I believe it's three times the size of Earth that's been going for 500 years. That's awesome. God is awesome. So the fear of the Lord starts with understanding of just how great and powerful he is. Second thing is this, the fear of the Lord in, includes respect, or maybe another word for this could be honor. I would submit to you that we live in uh, just one of the most disrespectful and dishonoring cultures that the world has ever known. Exhibit A would be, through the majority of human history, if you make fun of your political leaders, they find you and they cut your head off. And today we buy t-shirts making fun of our presidents in the mall, right? Now, I'm not saying that the cutting your head off thing is good or better. I'm just saying we're kind of disrespectful, right? We don't hold a lot of degree of respect for authority or putting someone into a position where they deserve respect. First Peter 3, the Apostle Peter says this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, that we understand that he is above us, both in who he is and what he does. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is holy. He is morally pure. We ought to treat the Lord Jesus with respect and not dishonor. The third aspect of the fear of the Lord is trust and obedience. It means that when God says something, you trust it and you actually put it into practice in your life. It's both heart and actions. Here's what Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 says. It says this, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, there it is, to walk in all his ways, that's obedience, to love him, there's the heart, 
and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Those who do not fear the Lord do not do what he says. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of legalism where you have to do good things in order to earn God's love, but I'm talking about obeying God and trusting him that when he says something is true, then you believe that he's true. When he says to do something, that you would follow that. When he says not to do something, you don't do that. When God says in his word to use your speech not to gossip and slander, but to build others up in love, that we do that. Or when God says to restrict your sexual activity to marital union between a man and a woman, that we don't mess with that. We don't mess around with your girlfriend or your fiance. We don't mess around with pornography or whatever 50 shades of gray nonsense and perversion is going on in our culture. We trust that God's word is true and we obey it because he's good and he's loving and he has our best interest in mind. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. When God says something, it means that you understand it and you obey it. And lastly, number four, I was going to just say fear, but that seemed a little redundant, so I, I wanted to word it differently, like focus and fixation, okay? I think there is a good and healthy biblical place for us to just rightly fear the Lord. Not being scared, but rightly fear the Lord. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 8, 13. It says, the Lord of hosts, you shall honor him as holy. There's the respect piece. Let him be your fear and your dread. That's a powerful word. Let the Lord be your fear and let the Lord be your dread. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Electricity is a very helpful thing. Amen? It can be used for a lot of very helpful purposes, but not rightly handled, it can mess you up. Okay? It can mess you up. It's good, but it must be handled properly. And I'm not talking about handling God, but I'm just, I just mean the way in which you approach it. I am terrible with electricity. I have electrician friends who I call up, and I still shock myself three or four times replacing a light switch. But when you see somebody who is a skilled electrician, they go in, they handle it with the appropriate amount of respect. They're not afraid of it, but they do have a, a healthy respect for it. And I would say, you, you guys understand the parallel I'm drawing here, you're, you're focused, you're fixed on, your attention is drawn to a, a right respect, a right treatment of God. Or the other analogy that comes to mind is, you know, when you're afraid of something, you'll focus on it, you'll really look at it. When I used to snowboard, I would always tell beginners, like, hey, don't focus on the tree, because if you keep thinking, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, you know what's going to happen? You're going to hit the tree, because that's what you're focused on. The Lord wants to be our focus. The Lord wants to be our fixation. The disciples were at one minute, they were scared of the wind and the sea, and then another minute, they were rightfully fearing the Lord. There's a, uh, there's a story from the famous children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that I think sums it up really great. If you've, if you've not seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, either the movie or read the book, uh, the story is the children are transported to the magical land of Narnia and they have talking animals. and They're talking about Aslan, the lion, who is a figure of Christ. Allegorically, he represents Jesus in the novel. And so the children are trying to grasp this idea of Aslan. They said, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think C.S. Lewis just nails that. Because in the same way, Jesus may not be safe in the sense that you can't control him. You can't control Jesus. The disciples couldn't control the wind and the sea. We can't control the one who can control the wind and the sea. Following my logic? He's not safe in the sense that he does whatever you want, but he's good and he's loving and he's right and he's truthful. Here's what Tim Keller has to say on this idea of the fear of the Lord. Why were they more terrified in the calm than they were in the storm? Because Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power. They couldn't control it. But Jesus had infinitely more power. So they had even less control over him. But there's a huge difference. A storm doesn't love you. Nature is going to wear you down, destroy you. You may say, well, that's true, but if I go to Jesus, he's not under my control either. He lets things happen that I don't understand. He doesn't do things according to my plan or in a way that makes sense to me. But if Jesus is God, then he's got to be great enough to have some reasons to let you go through things you can't understand. His power is unbounded, but so are his wisdom and his love. Nature is indifferent to you, but Jesus is filled with untamable love for you. If the disciples had really known that Jesus loved them, if they had really understood that he is both powerful and loving, they would not have been scared. So the fear of the Lord is not being scared of God, but is holding him in a right place of awe-filled, respectful, obedient worship and trusting him that even in the storms of life, he's good and he's loving. And he uses these storms, he uses them in our life to redirect our attention from things we should not be afraid of to a rightful and holy fear of the Lord. And here's the fifth principle, the last one we'll look at today. God sometimes allows his children to go through storms in order to draw us closer to him. Just think about this. Do you think those disciples were all in with Jesus? And they'd left businesses, they'd left homes, they'd left family. They were following Jesus closely. They'd seen him do miracles. They'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him cast out demons. They were, they were all in, right? They were all in. How much more so after they just watched Jesus calm the wind and the sea and had a glimpse into who he truly was? You know, sometimes we go through life thinking, I'm doing a pretty good job managing my life. Probably don't really need a whole lot. Whenever we start thinking that, we're in actually a really dangerous place. Amen? We need God every hour of every day. And God wants to be in close relationship with us. And when there's a breach in the relationship, it's not God who's gone away, it's us. And God will use storms in our lives, difficulties in our life, to draw us closer to him. Oh, you know, it doesn't always feel that way in the middle of the storm. It feels like maybe, you know, back on point two, where are you, God? But I believe that there's a way that we can go through storms knowing that God is close and that when we come out on the other side, we can see that he has never left us.
He has never walked away from us, but he's been with us the whole time. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a quote from an author named B.M. Launderville says this. He uses the analogy of a vine and an oak tree. The vine clings to the oak during the fiercest of storms. Although the violence of nature may uproot the oak, twining tendrils still cling to it. If the vine is on the side of the tree opposite the wind, the great oak is its protection. If it is on the exposed side, the tempest only presses it closer in to the trunk. In some storms of life, God intervenes and shelters us, while in others, he allows us to be exposed so that we will be pressed more closely to him. Church, your God is with you. I'm going to close by saying this. Trusting in Jesus does not mean that our life will always go smoothly, but it does mean that our eternity is secure. Jesus has gone through the ultimate storm. Jesus went into the belly of the whale, as it were, swallowed up so that he might destroy the, the forces of darkness once and for all. And I don't know what storm you're facing. I don't know what difficulty you're going through. But I can tell you that God is good. God is loving. God is in control. For some of you here today, you are not in the middle of a storm yourself. It's not your own crisis or your own storm. Two things. Number one, prepare, okay? <laughs> some storm will come. Some difficulty will come. Some situation where you find yourself powerless will come. May your roots grow deep so that when the storm does come, you may be able to stand. But secondly, even if you yourself are not right now in the middle of a storm or a difficult season, someone you know is. And they could use love and they could use prayer and they could use reassurance of God's goodness in their life. Maybe even in practical, tangible, demonstrable ways. Maybe they need a meal. Maybe they just need a hug. Maybe they need you to pray over them. Maybe they don't need you to throw Bible verse bombs at them. Maybe they don't need you to speculate like Job's friends. I would refer you to the end of chapter two in the silence part, okay? But maybe they do need you to give them a hug and just look them in the eye and say, I love you, I'm here for you. How can I pray for you? I can't imagine how much it hurts. I'm so sorry. God is good. If you're not a Christian, God wants to use the storms in your life to wake you up and get your attention on him. It's like C.S. Lewis puts it that sometimes pain is like a megaphone that God uses to wake up a deaf and sleeping world. Wake up! You want to let that suffering be for no purpose or do you want to allow it to be redeemed by the God who loves you and has promised to one day work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Don't let your storms, your difficulties, your sufferings be in vain. Run to the one who loves you. I want to invite us to a time of response now. We're going to respond in a variety of ways. The first way that we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you are a guest or a visitor with us, I want to just make sure you know you're under no obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like, but you're under no obligation. We give as Christians because God has given us his son, Jesus. And so I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward now if they would and begin to collect the offering. Just practically, I would remind you, if you're making a check, make it out to Sound City Bible Church. If you um, want to give online, there's good ways to do that. We can set you up with that at the Connect desk uh, after the service. We have text to give, other, other options as well. 
While they're collecting the offering, let me just read through some discussion questions this week for our community groups so that we can care for one another and love one another this week in these discussions. So first question is just be honest. What storms or difficulties or trials are you going through? Okay? And if none, don't feel like you need to make any up, okay? It's okay to say, boy, I'm actually experiencing a really good season right now. But you can answer these other questions. Where are you liable to panic when the going gets tough? Or where is your heart prone to asking, do you not care to God? Examine your heart. Where are the weak areas? How is God using those storms to display his glory to you or to redirect your attention or to draw you closer to him? Next question is this. How does the gospel strengthen and encourage you in the storm? How does the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus encourage you when you're in that season? And again, if, if it's not you, how can we encourage our brothers and sisters when they are facing storms? So I want you to discuss these things. Um, I will post these up on our uh, Sound City Online community. Uh, every week we post up a kind of a summary of the sermon, the discussion questions, a link to the audio if you'd like to listen to it. If you don't have a Sound City Online account, we'd love to sign you up for one at our Connect desk as well. So that's a way you can stay connected to uh, the life of the church and the good communication about what's going on. We're going to also respond this morning with the celebration of the Lord's table, the celebration of communion. And today as we come forward and we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, I want you to be reminded that Jesus endured the storms for you. And I want you to be reminded that his power and his glory are on greatest display at the cross. If, if you are ever tempted to doubt or wonder, does God love me? You look at the cross. If you're ever tempted to wonder, does God love me? Is God really in control? You look at the cross of Jesus. And in communion, we can do that. If you're a guest, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us. If you're not a Christian, uh, we would invite you to become a Christian and come take communion for the first time today. We're also gonna sing. The band is gonna lead us and Pastor Joe's gonna lead us in some songs singing about the greatness of God, the glory of God, his power on display, even in the middle of storms. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand if you would. I'll pray and then we'll come forward for response. Father, we thank you that you do love us. We thank you that the cross stands as an indelible, unmovable, unshakable marker in history that you have defeated the forces of darkness and sin and chaos. God, we thank you that you walk with us through the storms of life and that we can experience peace in all circumstances. And God, I pray right now for my friends, for those who are experiencing storms, would you comfort them and encourage them? And God, for those who are Maybe not. Would you give them the grace to be a comfort and encouragement to someone else? Pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen.